You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. 47 years ago yesterday, in the morning of April 4th, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He was in Memphis to uh, support striking sanitation workers, which he saw as the next iteration, the next step in, uh, or part and parcel of his uh, crusade to foster uh, racial justice and equality in this country, which he saw as intertwined with economic justice uh, in our country. And as some of you probably remember that after King was assassinated, there was um, much tumult and uh, disorder in the country. And so uh, the federal government uh, dispatched troops to uh, keep the peace, let's say, in Washington, D.C. And the story goes that a uh, young Jewish man, not yet a rabbi, happened to be in Washington, D.C. that that next day, which happened to be the eve of Passover 1968. And he walked through uh, Washington and saw the soldiers pointing their machine guns at him. And he said to himself, that somewhere in his kishkas, this seemed to him like Pharaoh's army. And so he developed, over the course of uh, that next year, what he termed a freedom seder. And he invited the Jewish community and the African American community to participate in that freedom seder and drew nearly 800 people linking the experience of the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt and their redemption to the experience of African Americans in the United States and the history of inequality and oppression and injustice. It, of course, was a theme that Dr. King himself hit on over and over again in his uh, sermons and his teachings relating the experience of the Exodus in the Bible to the experience of African Americans in the 50s and 60s in the United States. The historian Michael Walzer, philosopher to the professor Michael Walzer, uh, talks about this in his book, Exodus and Liberation. I mentioned this the other day at our Passover University. Michael Walzer says that the Exodus serves as the template for just about every major social movement almost throughout all of human history, certainly throughout Western history, that each social movement sees itself through the lens of the experience 
of Egyptian slavery, of the Israelites in Egyptian slavery, and he says he breaks it down into a three-part formula that every single social movement, whether it was the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the uh, gay rights movement that started later in the 60s and the 70s and, uh, and is, is uh, uh, gaining much more traction in our time, the uh, movement to advance equality for people of different abilities, for Native Americans, for justice in South and Central America, and before that, the fight for abolition of slavery in this country, and so many other social movements. Michael Walzer breaks it down into three parts. He says that what the Exodus teaches is wherever you are, it's probably Egypt. And there's a better place, a promised land. And the only way to get there is by joining together and marching. And so every social movement, every group of people that sees itself has a self-identity as an oppressed people, looks at the Exodus story as a template, as a model for their own redemption, their own liberation, their own movement to a better future. So this future rabbi, whose name is Arthur, Arthur excuse me, Arthur Waskow, uh, who happened to be, this is why, you know, it was like very silly for me to be on this uh, uh, forward list, because I was uh, uh, sharing space with a rabbi like Arthur Waskow, who's uh, over 90 years old, has spent a, a lifetime um, doing such incredible uh, work um, in, in the Jewish community and uh, bringing Jewish wisdom and uh, um, uh, uh, activities toward peace and justice uh, to the entire uh, world, to the entire American community, um, who's written prolifically um, and has touched so many lives. Um, so Arthur Waskow is uh, on this list too, um, but I would say it's Arthur Waskow's list and I happen to also be on it. Um, and uh, so Arthur Waskow was this young man, future rabbi, who created this Freedom Seder in 1968. And what's, I think, at the core of what he did is something that I'm sure doesn't come as much as a, a, of a surprise to many, if not most, maybe all of the people in this room. People who lived through the civil rights struggle. People who saw Jewish people go down on freedom rides to the South and get kidnapped and murdered because they saw as a core commitment as a Jew that if some people are not free, then nobody is truly free. And we saw and remember our leaders, like Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched arm in arm with Martin Luther King on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, who advanced, helped advance the cause of civil rights, not because they were jumping on a bandwagon of a growing social movement, but because they saw it as a core element of their deepest Jewish commitments to be involved in justice for everybody. And if we went back in history, we would see Jews involved in these critical social movements, especially in this country, not because of coincidence, or circumstance, but because they saw it as a core Jewish responsibility to be involved in those causes. In the labor movements of the 20s and 30s, 
in the women's suffrage movement in the early 20th century, in the abolitionist movement in the mid-19th century. Jews have been involved as Jews because of their Jewishness in all of these social movements throughout history, and in part, in large part, it's because of the insight that Professor Michael Walzer has, that the Exodus is the template for these movements. And a Jew is nothing if not a product of the Exodus. What we have been, what the, the sermon series, the topic, the theme that I uh, introduced yesterday that we're going to spend uh, uh, yesterday, today, and uh, the rest of the Passover talking about is this idea of being Jewish. What is at the core of what it means to be a Jew in the world? As my teacher Sharon Brown would say, like, what's the ikar of, of being Jewish? What's the essence of being Jewish? If you were to distill it down to its core components, what's the essence of being Jewish? And yesterday I talked about doubt and skepticism. The drive for investigating our world, not taking anything at face value, but questioning, challenging, prodding, right? You look at the Talmud and it's a 33 volume work entirely of questions and challenges, and maybe 1% of those questions are ever answered in the Talmud. Right, so we talked about that yesterday, doubt, skepticism, challenge, questioning, that's a core element of what it means to be Jewish. And we talked about how that feature of Jewishness emerges from the story of Passover that we're reading and celebrating today. And if we believe what my teacher Rabbi Elliot Dorf says, that the central story of every religion gives you an insight into what are the core beliefs and core commitments the essence of what those religions are trying to express, their, their worldview, their orientation to the world, then the exodus for the Jewish people is the place to look to see what it means at its core to be Jewish. And it probably then doesn't surprise you that I want to talk about this element of the exodus today, the element of the exodus that is about hating injustice and being unable to ignore injustice where it exists in the world, and being moved on a deep level, on a almost reflexive level, to respond and eradicate injustice where it, exi where it exists. That's at the core of what it means to be Jewish. To be Jewish is to hate injustice. So if we look in the uh, story of the Exodus, uh, chapter 2, verse, starting verse 11, you see this in rapid-fire succession. Sometime after that, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his kinsfolk and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen. He turned this way and that, and seeing no one about, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand when he, and he hit him in the sink. Well, we'll just pause there for a second. Now, there's a lot that we could say about those couple of verses. And I'm not necessarily convinced that the Torah is totally holding up Moses as a model to emulate. I think that there are some problems with what Moses does there. 
not the least of which is committing murder. Maybe he was killing in self-defense. Um, I think that that's debatable. Um, but what I love is the strand of the tradition that says this was one of the instances in which God says, this is the God. Somebody who is so torn up about an injustice that's happening. Somebody who looks around and says in the language of the Mishnah, in a place where there are no people, strive to be a person, strive to be a human being. Moose looks around sees nobody responding to this injustice that's happening. And almost like as if a doctor had hit his knee and he kicked, he sees the injustice, he looks around, sees nobody stepping in, and so he steps in to act. At his core, his reflexive, his instinct, he doesn't even really, we don't know if he knows he's a Hebrew at that point. But something deep down in his kishkas, in his, that pintala yid, that Jewish person deep down inside him says that there is injustice happening here and I need to step in and stop it. And then the next day, he went out, he found two Hebrews fighting. So he said to the offender, why do you strike your fellow? He retorted, who made you chief and ruler over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses was frightened and thought, then the matter is known. Okay, so you see two things here. The first is Moses' instinct for justice applying not only when there's an oppressive people oppressing one of his own people, but also when there's injustice happening among his own people. When there's an internal dispute, when there's internal oppression, Moses steps in to try to resolve the problem. You also see in that passage, I think, what I talked about yesterday. That there is something instinctive in the Jewish consciousness that when someone tells you to do something, you say, tell me why. Right? Who made you ruler over me? Why do I have to believe that? Why do I have to listen to you? My daughter has learned this very well. When Pharaoh learned of the matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. He arrived in the land of Midian and sat down beside a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But shepherds came and drove them off. Moses rose to their defense, and he watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why did you leave the man? Ask him in to break bread. Moses consented to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah as wife. She bore a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And that last verse where we hear the name that Moses gives his son is an important one. We'll come back to that in a second. But in rapid-fire succession, you have three instances of Moses seeing oppression, seeing injustice, and reflexively, instinctively stepping in to respond to it. He does it when there is 
let's say, an international incident. He does it when there is an internal Jewish incident. And he does it when there are people on both sides of the equation who have no relation to him whatsoever. The Midianites are not his people. And those shepherds who are oppressing and bothering the Midianite women, they're not his people either. But nevertheless, instinctively, deep down in his kishkas, Moses knows that there's no one around to stop this injustice. So the responsibility falls on me. Even though it's not my battle, even though it's not my fight, on some level, any fight for justice is Moses' fight. Going back to Martin Luther King, we remember that he famously said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And from our very foundations, We've known that at a core level to be true. That just because it's not something bad that's happening to the Jews doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to stop it. The book of Deuteronomy says this in an extremely stark way. That when you see your enemy's donkey crushed under its burden, you have to go and help your enemy, even your enemy, lift up the donkey and its burden. And as if that were enough, the text then goes on to say, Lo tuchal lehitalem. You are not allowed to look away. You are not allowed to avert your eyes. Even if the injustice, even if the suffering is happening to your enemy, you are not allowed to look away. And now, I don't know which is the cause and effect here. I don't know which is the chicken and egg. Because we have Moses' account first, and then, look at the bottom of this passage, we see God following suit in the same way. A long time after that, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites were groaning under the bondage and cried out, and their cry for help from the bondage rose up to God. God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. That's the moment in which God decides to intervene in the drama of Israelite enslavement, when he hears their cry. Now, because of the placing here, I don't know if God is learning from Moses' example, or if Moses anticipated what God, how God would respond. Or if there's some kind of symbiosis happening here, that God sees it's time to respond when there's a human being who is willing to step up and work in even their own small way to eradicate injustice. And if we take a step forward, then God takes a step forward. And as God takes a step forward, we can take another step forward. Maybe that's what's happening here. But in any event, what I think that this passage in rapid-fire succession shows that the core of what it is to be Jewish in our heart of hearts, and then coming from the top, the response to crying and oppression and suffering from the Jewish soul is to hate injustice and respond to eradicate it. It's as if, it's as the Psalms teach us, one of the Psalms that we read every Friday night, 
Ohave Adonai Sinu Ra. Lovers of the Holy One hate evil. Hate evil. We don't use the word hate a lot in liberal Judaism. But here, I think, the term is appropriate. It's not enough to casually dislike injustice. It's not enough to say, ah, you know, that's too bad that that's happening. It's not enough to sit around and talk about it, talk about hating it. You actually have to feel it in your heart. And somewhere deep in the Jewish soul is that sense that injustice is hateful. And we actually have to fight our ability, our natural instinct, to not want to eradicate injustice. It's why when the Pew Report um, studied uh, uh, American Jews and said, what are, what are essential to being Jewish? Underneath remembering the Holocaust, which was the top one of what was essential to be Jewish, although I think that might actually have a relation to this too, underneath that was working to make the world a better place. Two different ways, basically, of saying that the same thing were the next two things. Because we know deep down that this is what it means to be Jewish. It comes from the very origins. God says in Genesis, I have singled Abraham out that he may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right in order that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. first Jew is given the charge of pursuing paths of justice. And that's what he is supposed to pass down to and through his project. And that's the inheritance. That's the gift that we've been given from our earliest moments. And it's reinforced over and over and over again in the Bible, related so deeply to the experience of suffering and oppression in Egypt. Because that is our central story, that's our core story. And that's our core story because who we are, it's built into our bones. That the, exist, that the experience of slavery is bitter and that there are pharaohs everywhere and that we have the capacity for fighting back and restoring the world to its appropriate place of justice, fairness, equality, and peace. So in Exodus 22, we are taught, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. No coincidence that that same phrase, Gerim Ha'item Be'eretz Mitzrayim, is exactly what Moses names his son. Gershom, Gershom, I was a stranger there. Because embedded into our consciousness is the experience of being strangers there. We know the heart of a stranger. We know the heart of the marginalized. We know the heart of the oppressed. We know the heart of the brutalized because we were, and in some senses still are, them. So we have a responsibility not to impose that kind of suffering on other people and make sure that nobody experiences that kind of suffering. You shall not ill-treat any widow or orphan, the marginalized and displaced, and 
disadvantaged in society. If you do mistreat them, I, God, will heed their outcry as soon as they cry out to me, and my anger will blaze forth, and I will put you to the sword, and your own wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. Because God is saying here that if you don't fulfill your core commitments as Jews, the essence of who you are as Jews, then you might as well not be Jews. You might as well, what this passage is saying, be Egyptians. Because that is precisely what God does to the Egyptians. My teacher, Rabbi Arya Cohen, puts it this way, the Exodus gives us a choice. You can be like God, or you can be like Pharaoh. The invitation of Torah is to be like God to hear the cries of people and respond instinctively to end the suffering. Or you can be like Pharaoh and ignore those cries. You have that choice, but just know that as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The end of tyrants is to be put to the sword for their wives to become widows and their children to become orphans. At least metaphorically speaking, and if not now, then at some distant point, that's the end of tyranny. And so you have a choice of what side of history you are going to be on. Are you going to be an Egyptian, or are you going to be a Jew? Lovers of the Holy One hate evil. And the essence of what it means to be a Jew is to hate and fight against injustice.